We are in the Christmas season, and the Christmas season is tied to worship. Pastor Joe said it so well last week. Christmas is tied to worship. In fact, the first Christmas that took place, the result was worship. When Jesus was born, the heavens were torn open, and Luke tells us that the heavenly hosts were saying, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. That is worship. As God the Son took on flesh in fulfillment of that age-old promise that was given to Abraham, all heaven couldn't help but just erupt in celebration of God's great worth that was now being shown in a way that it, like it had never been shown before. And so they cranked up the amps and they blew the roof off of that place, giving glory to God. And it was the glory he rightfully deserved. Fast forward 2,000 years and worship is what the people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, it's what they do, right? If you are a Christian, worship, it's part of the program. And Pastor Joe rightly pointed out last week that people were originally created worshiping. Everyone worships. It's, we're made to be worshipers. There's no question about that. And yet the thing that they worshiped has changed. Ever since the great fall in Genesis 3, People no longer worshipped God who deserved worship. No, they, they exchanged that. They exchanged that for worship of people or, or, or pictures of people, images of people or, or birds or animals or Romans tells us of creeping things. Seriously? Things that aren't worthy of worship at all. Instead of worshiping the glorious, immortal, unchanging, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God, they worship these things. Thanks be to God, though. Thanks be to God that those who have been brought back to him through Jesus Christ, they have been rescued to now worship him once again. They've been freed from the folly of worshiping those ridiculous things and now are able to worship the one true God. Worship. It's what we do. We, we, we know that every moment of our lives should be lived out as an act of worship to God, but we also, we come together once a week, at least once a week, to worship together as the body of Christ worship. It's part of the routine. It's something that we often do without giving all that much thought about. And we come together and we sing a few songs, whether we like them or not, and then we get on with our lives. But should it be that way? Should it just be something that we do? Should it be just part of the routine I think most of us would instinctively answer, absolutely not, no way. But why? This morning, I want to take a few minutes to answer that question. I want to answer the why. Why should Christians think carefully about how they worship God? And then once we answer that question, I want to brief, briefly look at how do we do that? Let's take a trip back into history. Let's go pretty far back, back to a time not 
Too long after the children of Israel were rescued from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after the commandments had been given at the mountain, just after that big worship tent was built, you know, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, just after that had been set up, God commanded that Moses bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent and prepare them to serve as priests. It was a seven-day-long process filled with elaborate ceremony. But then on the eighth day, on the eighth day, Aaron prepared the very first offering for the sins of the people at the tabernacle. And that's when something miraculous happened. In Leviticus 9.23, it says this, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Can you imagine the sight of that? Can you imagine the brilliant and and, and terrifying sight of the glory of God bursting into view? The offering set ablaze by this fire that came out of nowhere. Imagine the sounds. Imagine the roar of the flame. Imagine the the crackling and the sizzling of the meat. Imagine the smells. It was a powerful moment. One that caused the people to just shout and fall on their faces. Was this a, a moment of worship or was this a moment of abject terror? Probably a little bit of both. But the story is not over. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Let's pause right there for a minute. Unauthorized fire. What is this unauthorized fire? The Hebrew word is zarah. It means illegitimate or foreign or strange. Fire is fire, right? Well, maybe not. This fire apparently wasn't taken from the right source. It wasn't taken from the fire that God had miraculously lit on the bronze altar. No, this fire must have been taken from somewhere else. It was unauthorized fire. It was strange fire. Maybe they they had a campfire nearby and just kind of lit them there. Or maybe there was a lamp or a torch or something like that. The fire came from some other place than the, the bronze altar. Check out what happens next. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. (laughs) What? Did Did we read this correctly here? They're killed for using the wrong type of fire. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Just a little harsh. They were worshiping God, were they not? Shouldn't God just be happy with the worship that he gets? Parents, don't you say to your children, especially around this time, hey, you're going to get some gifts. Now, whatever you get, no matter if it's big, no matter if it's small, no matter if it's exactly what you want, or maybe it's something you really don't like, but you always, always, always say thank you, right? Shouldn't God be like that? Shouldn't he just, you know, accept whatever offerings are given him? It's like, hey, hey, you're giving me something. I should be at least be thankful. 
And this might come as a shock to our kind of freewheeling, independent thinking, self-important ears, but the answer is absolutely not. You see, God is God. God is God, and he alone is responsible for all that is. We are not the originators of our own existence. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to decide what is right or what is wrong. And we don't have the freedom to decide what kind of worship is acceptable to God either. We like to think that we do. We show up on Sunday mornings, we have our coffee, we get our donut, we sit in our comfortable seats, and then very often figurative sunglasses come on. And we mentally pull out notepad and pen and begin evaluating what we think of the service. We're looking at the style of music often. We're looking at the lighting, often the temperature of the room, all those kinds of different things. And and we're, we're often considering whether or not we should, how, should we participate in this? How much should we participate in this? And if we like what's going on, well, then we sing along. Maybe we'll even throw a few bucks in the offering bag as it goes by. Maybe we'll even come up to the pastor or the guy leading worship, and we'll pat them on the back and say, hey, it was a good service today. But let me tell you, if that's where our hearts and minds are during worship, then we're failing to understand what this is all about and who this is for. We've trailed off from worship being the sacred time of just giving God the glory that he deserves. And we started thinking about other things. I think that's something similar happened inside of Nadab and Abihu. Their minds, it couldn't have been focused on the glory of God. They weren't thinking carefully about the way that they were worshiping, whether or not their worship was going to be acceptable to him. Their minds, they seemed to be somewhere else. And these were, these were important guys. Let me tell you a little bit about Nadab and Abihu. These weren't your average kind of irreverent punks. These were the sons of Aaron, nephews of Moses. As far as we know, they were, they were respectable, God-fearing men. They were priests. After his father Aaron, well, Nadab would be high priest of all Israel. And after Nahab, Nadab, then Abihu would be high priest. Look at Exodus 24, and you'll see that they were among those that God had allowed to come partway up the mountain when God was speaking with Moses. Verse 11 says that they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. All the rest of Israel, they had to wait down below. They were told not even to touch the base of this mountain. But these two guys, these two guys are called, actually called up by God by name. God says, bring Nadab and Abihu. That's what it says in Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. What an awesome thing. What an incredible thing, an awesome privilege. These guys were in that inner circle. They were there. They were the important guys. And then when we, when we read about this strange fire, it, it, there's nothing, nothing that hints of anything grotesque here, right? Nothing perverse. 
It doesn't even seem like there was any ill intent here. Back in uh, 1978, T.S. Eliot commented on something that happened in San Francisco. It happened at a place called Grace Cathedral. The bishop there, he had invited uh, all kinds of the community's transcendentalists to come perform their ceremonies in this place. And T.S. Eliot said, called it murder in the cathedral. There was no real murder. No one died in that place. But what he was talking about was the death of proper worship to God that took place in that building. Harper's Magazine, an article in there, reported this. During one nature ceremony in the cathedral, a decidedly ecumenical audience watched reverently as poet Allen Ginsberg, wearing a deer mask, joined others similarly garbed to ordain Senators Alan Cranston and John Tooney as godfathers of animals. Cranston the, the, of the Thule elk and Tooney of the California brown bear. While movie projectors simultaneously, simultaneously cast images of buffalo herds and other endangered species on the walls and ceilings to the accompaniment of rock music. I think Eliot's Eliot's thoughts are right on. Murder in the cathedral. A place that was set apart for worship to the one true God is now a place where worship is just being slaughtered. But when you look at Nadab and Abihu, that doesn't seem to be this, the same thing that's going on here. It doesn't seem to compare to that type of situation. All they did was offer this, this strange fire. They're still offering the fire. They're still going through the motions, but it's, 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 it's just not the, the, the right fire. And yet for that, God burns them alive. Why does he do that? What does that tell us about God? Look at what God said to Moses immediately following that incident. Then Moses said, to Aaron, or Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. That word sanctified, it means to be regarded as holy or set apart. God says that those who are near him, they must honor him. He says that before all people, he will be elevated and singled out as the most important, the most special person in all of existence. Those who approach him without thinking carefully about what they, what they say or how they act, those who don't come asking themselves whether or not their worship will be acceptable to him, will beware. Because God takes worship very seriously. He cares about worship. I mean, just look at the emphasis on worship throughout the Old Testament. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters. 25 of them are devoted to the construction of the tabernacle where God's people would worship. The book of Leviticus, you read it recently? 27 chapters. Guess what? 27 of them, all 27 of them, are about how Israel was to worship. The book, the book of Psalms. Basically, a 150-chapter book of worship songs to God. And that's the 30,000-foot view. But as you get closer and you look, at, you look at individual incidences, you see the seriousness that God takes worship with at an even more clear uh, level. 
when the Israelites were delivered from slavery. And God had brought them to the mountain. Moses had the Ten Commandments. And they started building a golden calf. Started worshiping it. These are your gods, Israel. This is what's responsible for bringing you up and delivering you from Egypt. And God's anger burned. Remember Jesus. Remember how he cared about worship. He came into the temple and he started turning tables over because he was zealous for worship. Hebrews 10.31 says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Mark 7, Jesus fires back at the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And he starts quoting Isaiah. It says this in 7.6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, the religious elites, the elites, they were up in arms about how Jesus' disciples weren't following certain traditions. And Jesus said to them, these man-made traditions that you have, these are worthless. It wasn't the tradition that was important, it was what was going on inside of them. And they were going through all kinds of motions to worship God, but their hearts weren't worshiping. And I wonder how many times I've been guilty of the exact same thing. How many times have I criticized the worship of others, not, be, not because of what was going on in their hearts, but because they weren't following the traditions or the procedures or the style of music that I'm accustomed to or had come to love? How many times have I I've been critical of, of details, the quality of the sound, the ability of the, the musicians, the, maybe the, the volume, the arrangement of the music, the lighting, the tempo, all these different things, rather than worrying first and foremost about my heart. Lord, is my heart, is the worship that's coming from my heart acceptable to you? Have I, have I been guilty, have, have we been guilty of honoring God with our lips when our hearts are focused on maybe honoring ourselves? You see, God takes worship very, very seriously. It's about him being honored, him being regarded as holy. He takes it seriously, shouldn't we? Have I wandered away from asking whether or not my worship is acceptable to God in exchange for asking whether or not it's something that I like or approve of? And if that's the case, then could it be that the one I'm actually worshiping isn't God at all, but actually something that looks more like myself or maybe my idea of what worship should be. And if that's true, at the very least, my heart is not in the right place. And could it be that I'm dishonoring the Lord even as I'm singing? John MacArthur writes in a book that he wrote called Strange Fire, he writes this, it's a serious crime to dishonor the Lord to treat him with contempt, or to approach him in a way that he detests. Those who worship God must do so in a way that he requires, treating him as holy. Friends, our worship to God matters. It matters. 
And you and I need to think carefully about how we worship. But how do we think carefully about how we worship? I think we do that by asking the right questions. We stop asking whether or not I thought it was a, a good service, a good sermon. We stop turning to each other uh, when it's all over and, and, and say, hey, what did you think? This isn't a movie. This is, we, do, we don't watch the movie together and say, say, exchange thoughts on, on how it went. No, we're not spectators watching a game. We're not an audience watching a performance. We're the players on the field. And we are the actors on the stage. We are the ones who are playing our hearts out, singing our lungs out, giving it all for the pleasure of the audience. And guess what? It's an audience of one. It's God that we're singing for. It's God that we're playing for. The questions we need to be asking are, what did God think of the service? What did he think of the people who were worshiping? What did I give God today? Was it acceptable? He looked straight into my heart, and what did he see? Was I giving him the praise that he deserves? There was a woman who came out to draw water from a well. And Jesus was there, and he asked her for a drink. And in a few moments, they were, they were having a conversation. They were talking about all kinds of different things. They were talking about the water that Jesus has to offer. They were talking about the many husbands that she had had. And then the topic switches to places of worship. And where, where's the right place to worship? And that's when Jesus says this in John 4.23. He says, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, tr must worship in spirit and truth. And once again, we see that God really cares about worship, don't we? Jesus says, did you catch it? He says that God is seeking. He's seeking such people to worship him. That's what he wants. That's what he cares about. That's why Christ came to this earth to gather a people that they might worship God. What kind of worshipers does he want? He wants people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? Spirit. Notice that it's not capitalized. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's not saying that true worshipers will somehow mysteriously worship in the Holy Spirit, though the Holy Spirit is absolutely, certainly involved in and enables God's people to worship. But the word spirit here, it's not about a person, it's about a location. It's location. The Samaritan woman was talking about whether or not the proper place to worship God was, is it where the Jews worship over in Jerusalem, or is it here on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship? And that's when Jesus turns right around and tells her, the hour's coming. Actually, it's already here when true worshipers, they worship in spirit. He's saying that true worship of God, the true worship that he's seeking, it's not physical. It's not a geographic location that it's about. It's a spiritual location. Worship begins as an internal activity. It's one that takes place inside of us. 
And that's what Jesus was confronting the Pharisees about, right? They were doing all sorts of external things. They were saying the right words, going through the right motions, but worship that God was looking for wasn't taking place inside their hearts. Their hearts were far from him. And because of that, their actions and their words were a waste of time. Is our worship at times a waste of time? As we come together to sing praises to God, are our hearts far from Him? Have we taken the time to prepare our hearts? Have we confessed sin? Have we reminded ourselves of the truths of the gospel? Have we come ready to cast our cares fully on God? Come, have we come expectantly, looking forward to proclaiming the greatness of our King? Have we come in humility, acknowledging that apart from Christ's mercy, we don't deserve to be doing this? Do we recognize that apart from the grace of God, we should actually just be consumed with holy fire, right here, right now. Sometimes I think that we look at uh, the music that we sing as a vehicle to prepare our hearts to worship. But the reality is that heart preparation, that needs to take place long before those first notes are played. The moment we open our mouths to sing, our hearts should be ready as well, shouldn't they? Otherwise, we're guilty of honoring God with our lips and being far from him in our hearts. I want to challenge us to begin preparing our hearts for worship before we sit down in these seats, before we sit down. What if we started preparing our hearts Saturday night? Saturday night. And we made sure we got to bed on time. Got a good night's sleep so that we'll, we're well, well rested and refreshed for Sunday morning. What if we set an alarm in the morning, early in the morning, so we're able to get up and, and immerse ourselves in the truths of God's word? We had time to get a, a good breakfast, have plenty of time to get the family ready, to get ourselves ready, so that we don't have the stress of trying to get here on Sunday mornings on time, so that we're set free when we're here to just have our hearts soar in praise to God. What if, if we, as we stepped out of the car, we're praying that God would lead us to the people that he wants us to bless that day, to encourage that day, to uplift that day, to pray for that day. What if we walked through these doors back here and we're praying, Lord, may my worship this morning be acceptable to you. Worship that is acceptable to God, that's worship in spirit. And we need to be thinking carefully about how well our spirits are prepared to worship God. But Jesus not only said that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit, he also wants them to worship him in truth as well, right? Friends, our ability to worship God, to do it the way he desires, that's dependent on our knowledge of his truth. The degree to which we know the truth about God and his interactions with our world, well, that determines the degree to which we'll be able to worship him. They, the two go hand in hand. I could sing to you the praises of a great new restaurant that I heard about. 
But until I go there, until I look at the menu, see the, the cleanliness and, and, and the, the appearance of the restaurant, until I sit down and actually taste the food, there's no way that I'm going to praise you, give that restaurant maybe the praise that it deserves. And in the same way, the more you and I know about our great God, what he's done for us, the more we'll be able to effectively worship him. Now, how can you worship God as well as you ought without knowing the truths of Genesis 1? That he is the great, powerful creator of all things. Well, if, if you didn't know Psalm 139, how intricately and intentionally he has made you. Or from Psalm 23, that he's the good shepherd who walks beside you through those dark valleys and leads you beside still waters. Or from John 7, that Jesus alone offers this living water that our souls are, are thirsting for. Or from John 17, that Jesus, he actually prays to the Father on our behalf that we'll be purified with truth. Or from Romans 1 through 3, that we're all in need of God's forgiveness. Those who think they're righteous and those who are, are, are neck deep in unrighteousness. Or from Revelation 19, that there's coming a day when we'll see Christ face to face in paradise and we'll be worshiping our king. If we're going to worship God as he rightly deserves, then we need to know his truth. Are you worshiping God in truth? Are the songs that we sing, are they filled with truth? Are we singing God's truth back to him? You know, there are a lot of, of really popular, really catchy Christian songs out there. Worship songs. A lot of churches enjoy singing them. And yet many of them are, are uninformed about who God is and what his word actually says about him. Either that or they're, or they're so shallow and so general that they could just be sung to anybody. It's just some type of love song that I could sing to my wife. Let's make sure that we're reading his word so that we can worship him with songs that actually speak the truth about him, not songs that are just tickling our ears with pleasing notes. See, we don't get to offer acceptable worship to God based on what we imagine him to be. We don't get to come flippantly. We don't get to come lazily. No, God is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. He wants people whose hearts are filled with praise it's, it's been building and building inside, and then it just comes bursting forth on the outside. He's looking for people who will worship him out of, out of knowledge of, of who he actually is and what he's actually done for them. He cares about worship. He takes it seriously. His people should take it seriously too. They should think carefully about how they worship. So let's stop asking whether or not we liked the service or not. And start asking what God thought of it. What God thought of the worship that was coming from our hearts. Let's make sure that our hearts, our spirits are prepared for worship. Let's not just worship with our lips. Let's let it come bursting forth from our hearts. The hearts that have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And are continually being transformed so that they beat in sync with his and let's make sure that our worship is informed by his truth. Let's study this. Hide God's word in our hearts. 
that our hearts might soar in authentic worship to our King. This Christmas, let's give God the glory that he deserves and worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray.